This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and welcome to another Witnesses of History podcast. And this is for the end of April. And we start with a report from the Spanish Civil War from the 26th of April, 1937, by Noel Monks, who's reporting on Guernica being destroyed by German planes, the 26th of April, 1937. I passed through Guernica at about 3.30 p.m. The time is approximate based on the fact that I left Bilbao at 2.30. Guernica was busy. It was market day. We passed through the town and took a road that Anton said would take us close to Marquina, where, as far as I knew, the front was. The front was there all right, but Marquina was not. It had been smashed flat by bombers. We were about 18 miles east of Guernica when Anton pulled to the side of the road, jammed on the brakes and started shouting. He pointed wildly ahead and my heart shot into my mouth when I looked. Over the tops of some hills appeared a flock of planes. A dozen or so bombers were flying high, but down much lower, seeming just to skim the treetops, were six Heinkel 52 fighters. The bombers flew on towards Guernica, but the Heinkels, out for random plunder, spotted our car and, wheeling like a flock of homing pigeons, they lined up the road and our car. Anton and I flung ourselves into a bomb hole 20 yards to the side of the road. It was half filled with water and we sprawled in mud. We half knelt, half stood with our heads buried in the muddy side of the crater. After one good look at the Heinkels, I didn't look up again until they'd gone. That seemed hours later, but it was probably less than 20 minutes. The planes made several runs along the road. Machine gun bullets plopped into the mud ahead, behind, all around us. I began to shiver from sheer fright. Only the day before, Steer, an old hand now, had briefed me about being strafed. Lie still, as flat as you can. Don't get up, don't start running, or you'll be bowled over for certain. When the Heinkels departed, out of ammunition, I presumed, Anton and I ran back to our car. Nearby, a military car was burning fiercely. All we could do was drag two riddled bodies to the side of the road. I was trembling all over now, in the grip of the first real fear I'd ever experienced. Then suddenly the quaking passed and I felt exhilarated. These were the days in foreign reporting when personal experiences were copy, for there hadn't been a war for 18 years, long enough for those who went through the last one to forget, and for a generation and a half who knew nothing of war to be interested. We used to call them I stories, and when the Spanish War ended in 1939, we were as heartily sick of writing them as the public must have been of reading them. At the foot of the hills leading to Guernica, we turned off the main road and took another back to Bilbao. Over to our left, in the direction of Guernica, we could hear the crumb of bombs. I thought the Germans had located reinforcements moving up from Santander to stem the retreat. We drove on to Bilbao. At the Presidencia, Steer and Holm were writing dispatches. They asked me to join them at dinner at Steer's hotel. We'd eaten our first course of beans and were waiting for our bully beef when a government official tears streaming down his face burst into the dismal dining room crying, Guernica is destroyed! The Germans bombed and bombed and bombed! 
The time was about 9.30pm. Captain Roberts banged a huge fist on the table and said, Bloody swine. Five minutes later, I was in one of Mendigiran's limousines, speeding towards Guernica. We were still a good ten miles away when I saw the reflection of Guernica's flames in the sky. As we drew nearer, on both sides of the road, men, women and children were sitting, dazed. I saw a priest in one group. I stopped the car and went up to him. What happened, father? I asked. His face was blackened, his clothes in tatters. He couldn't talk. He just pointed to the flames, still about four miles away, then whispered, Avionus, Bombus, Macho, Macho. In the good eye tradition of the day, I was the first correspondent to reach Guernica and was immediately pressed into service by some Basque soldiers collecting charred bodies that the flames had passed over. Some of the soldiers were sobbing like children. There were flames and smoke and grit and the smell of burning human flesh was nauseating. Houses were collapsing into the inferno. In the plaza, surrounded almost by a wall of fire, there were about a hundred refugees. They were wailing and weeping and rocking to and fro. One middle-aged man spoke English. He told me, At four, before the market closed, many aeroplanes came. They dropped bombs. Some came low and shot bullets into the streets. Father Aaron was wonderful. He prayed with the people in the plaza while the bombs fell. The man had no idea who I was, as far as I know. He was telling me what had happened to Guernica. Most of Guernica's streets began or ended at the plaza. It was impossible to go down many of them because they were walls of flame. Debris was piled high. I could see shadowy forms, some large, some just ashes. I moved round to the back of the plaza among survivors. They had the same story to tell. Aeroplanes, bullets, bombs, fire. Within 24 hours, when the grim story was told to the world, Franco was going to brand those shocked, homeless people as liars. So-called British experts were going to come to Guernica weeks afterwards when the smell of burnt human flesh had been replaced by petrol dumped here and there among the ruins by Mola's men and deliver pompous judgments. Guernica was set on fire, willfully, by the Reds. A war of a different kind now from April the 30th, 1923 and a report in the Daily Telegraph of Wembley being stormed. I've lived in Wembley all my life, though by the time you hear this recording, I will have moved away. Everyone in Wembley, certainly those who've lived here a long time, know the story of the 1923 Cup final and Billy the White Horse. And as the area has been redeveloped, there are several places now named after the White Horse. There's the White Horse Bridge across the stadium station. There's the White Horse Square nearby, and now there's also a Whitehorse pub. This is the story, the report by B. Benison in the Telegraph on the April the 30th, 1923, of the Whitehorse Cup final. Never before in all the wonderful history of our sports has anything been seen like the occurrences associated with the battle for the Football Cup in the new and mighty stadium of the British Empire Exhibition at Wembley on Saturday. There were amazing and incredible scenes, the result of failure to control crowds such as never before gathered in so small an area in this country. Some thousand people were injured, men, women, boys, girls. What happened should never have been. 
The assurance was given that no longer need the public remain at home because they do not care to read the unwelcome announcement over the turnstile entrances, gates closed. But the gates were closed. At a modest estimate, more than 60,000 people were shut out. Thousands of ticket holders were turned away. What we had been led to suppose was a perfect organisation was beaten and broken. Gates were rushed, iron railings were bent and twisted and trampled down. The crowd poured in, and before the rush was over, something like 200,000 people were packed into the arena, and at the most there was room for but 125,000. Fully an hour before the game was time to begin, it was announced that 60,000 folk had passed through the turnstiles and the order to close the gates was given, but the damage had been done there. Down went this and that entrance, a great human stream swept into the huge arena. Policemen were swallowed up by the human torrent. High up from the cinder track were bulging, swaying walls of people. First they cracked here, then there, and almost in a twinkling the playing pitch was black with people. What seemed to be but a handful of police accepted the inevitable. They could do nothing. They were lost in the crowd. Against iron railings, against cement walls, men and women were crushed and bruised. The whistles of overwrought, overworked, hot, tired, badgered ambulancemen were blowing frantically. A casualty here, a casualty there, casualties everywhere. Some lay down, exhausted, scores of blanched-faced women, many hatless, hair dishevelled, cheeks wet with tears, were separated from their men. And in strange contrast to all this, two bands in the midst of the mass of disorderly humanity were playing light, lilting, catchy airs. Then came a dozen or so mounted police who, reinforced by comrades on foot, forced their way into the arena. They arranged their forces and, having shaped a plan of campaign, set about clearing the playing pitch. In something like three quarters of an hour, a multitude of people were in the hollow of the hand of the police. Back they went, and at 3.40, the way had been made for the game to begin. And from the uh, averted near disaster at the first ever cup final at Wembley, we come to the end of the Second World War for a British prisoner of war in Stalag 3D, Berlin. This reports from the 14th to the 29th of April 1945 by Norman Norris. We were paraded to march, but owing to the intense air activity, the Commandant did not give the order until the early hours of the morning. As the gates were flung open for the last time for us to march through, numbers of local civilians, mostly women, were waiting, imploring us to take them with us. One woman flung her arms round George Hamlet's neck, kissing him and pleading to be allowed to go with him. However, not one offer was taken up, and we marched away from the huts and the barbed wire. Even the camp guards marching with us were glad to be marching west. With the advancing Russian soldiers discovering the hell-like conditions their compatriots were being kept in, it was little wonder that it was into British or American hands they wished to fall. In the morning of the 16th of April, we reached Potsdam. It had been raided the night before and there was chaos everywhere with numbers of German soldiers hopelessly drunk. But as we marched through all this destruction, tough SS troops were erecting barricades in a desperate attempt to stem the Russian advance. Terror and panic could be seen amongst the civilian population. Our guards spread rumours that the Russians would murder us as well as the Germans if they overran us. Eventually, we reached a small village named Senska, but there was something sinister about this place. 
It was packed with German troops with a high proportion of officers. It appeared it was being used as an HQ and even our guards were not happy about remaining there, so we marched on and rested under some trees. An hour later, Russian aircraft came over to strafe the village and, without any opposition, dived backwards and forwards as if enjoying themselves. Our few remaining guards were just as perplexed as we were about where to go next when we had a stroke of luck. A French prisoner of war appeared and, after a battle of languages, finally made us understand that if we followed him, he would take us to a representative of the Red Cross. Within a short while, we came to a magnificent country mansion with a number of cottages scattered about. It seemed to be a small community on its own, farming the land and rich in dairy produce. The house itself was luxurious. Huge chandeliers hung in the main hall and many animal heads adorned the walls. On the upper floor, at the top of the stairs, stood a huge stuffed gorilla. A baroness lived here with her daughter and she gave us a cold reception. Later we found that the daughter's husband was an officer in the SS and was fighting on the Eastern Front. The baroness allowed us to use the barn to sleep in but told our guards that we could only have potatoes to eat. How we eyed the chickens running loose, the pigs in their styes, above all the cows standing ready to be milked in their immaculate stalls. Arrogant to the end, the baroness must have known that it was only a matter of time when we would take all we needed. The German farm overseer wore the traditional jackboots and attempted to carry out the baroness's wishes, but with the gunfire of the advancing Russian troops getting nearer each day, he was unsure of himself. Amongst the farm workers were a number of Polish men and women and two Russian prisoners of war. After a while, we made contact with the Red Cross, who was using this place as their HQ. He was a Swiss national and seemed a furtive type. We eyed him with suspicion. He seemed much too concerned with the Baroness. However, he did issue some Red Cross food and cigarettes, which helped save the situation, though we noted that the Baroness was also smoking fairly heavily. After a couple of days, we woke to find that all our remaining guards had left in the night, except one who must have been at least 60 and just did not know what to do. In the end, he sought our advice. Seeing that the old boy was getting on and that he had given us no trouble in the past, the advice was unanimous. Get rid of your uniform, Dad, and bugger off home. Thanking us profusely, he disappeared across the fields. We were now in a rather tricky position, sandwiched between the Germans and the advancing Russians, and with the gunfire getting nearer, we looked round for more protection. Exploring the farm buildings, we discovered a plant for extracting alcohol from potatoes. Underneath lay vaults which were strongly built of brick, and we decided we'd take our chance there. We discovered we'd made a wise choice when in one corner we found chairs and bedding that the farm overseer had moved down for his family. As the Russians drew nearer, shells and mortars began to fall in and around the farm. German anti-tank gunners dug in to resist the Russian armoured attacks, and they drew terrific, terrific fire. The two Russian prisoners of war, who had now joined us in the vaults, said they would contact the Russian advance troops when they arrived. Having them with us was a real stroke of luck. Gunfire, coupled with the heavy explosion of mortar, now became intense. The Russians were pouring heavy fire on the area. Long lines of German troops could be seen running across the fields, their boots and uniforms covered with mud as they tried to escape the withering fire. Some came running through the farm itself with hunted looks in their eyes as they struggled to run even faster through the sea of mud. Two Polish prisoners of war 
who were watching the fighting from the yard, were killed by one exploding mortar shell, mutilated beyond all recognition. A Polish girl running across the yard received severe leg wounds and was carried down into the vaults, where Cliff Kirkpatrick gave all the help he could. Two British POWs attempted to get a better view were also hit. One had his face entirely skinned from a mortar blast, but the real tragedy, as far as we British were concerned, happened a little later. With the advance of Russian tanks on the outskirts of the farm, a German anti-tank gun still continued to fire. The Russians now poured a withering fire at this last remaining gun crew, completely eliminating them. Unfortunately, our sergeant major with another man was sheltering in a house near the gun site. A heavy tank shell went right through the walls, decapitating them both. It was indeed a tragedy after four years of imprisonment to be killed within minutes of freedom. The ground now seemed to shake with the weight of advancing armour. Then at last we saw the first Russian tank lumber into the farmyard. Our two Russian prisoners of war ran across to it, shouting and waving their arms. We saw the tank commander emerge from the turret, jump down, engaging conversation with them. Within a short time, we were all shaking hands and hugging each other. As other tank crews arrived, they too received the same treatment. And so, on the 29th of April, 1945, we were free at last. To soften up the German opposition for a further advance, the Russians now employed a remarkable weapon, the Ktusha, or the Stalin organ. This was a mobile rocket ramp which fired off amazing numbers of projectiles. They put a long line of them across the fields, wheel to wheel, and at the drop of a hand poured what seemed to be an endless rain of fire into the retreating Germans. While they were still retreating, we wrapped the bodies of our two dead comrades in sacks and with heavy hearts buried them in the private garden of the mansion. Now that the Russians had taken over, the Baroness took orders instead of giving them. We no longer had to be satisfied with just potatoes. Within a short time, chickens were being boiled and pigs were being slaughtered. And for the first time in four years, we had fresh milk in abundance. The farm overseer tried to protest, but was ordered to keep quiet. Jim and I decided to look over his house. As a good Nazi, he no doubt had luxuries to show for it. We were rooting around in his bedroom when we heard him clumping upstairs. Seeing us calmly go through the drawers in his dressing table, he bellowed at us to get out. Taking no notice, Jim went over to the sideboard and found it locked. After a struggle to get it opened, he turned to the Germans and asked for a key. Schweinerei, he spat at Jim. At that moment, heavy footsteps sounded on the stairs. The door slowly opened and into the room strode a Russian shoulder, standing at least six foot tall and with his fur hat looking enormous. On either hip, he sported an outsized pistol. Seeing Jim and I, he gave a smile, but the smile vanished when his gaze fixed on the German. He could speak a little German and we managed to explain that we wanted the sideboard open. Drawing one of his pistols, he pointed at the German's head. Never have I seen a key produced and drawers open so quickly. Inside the sideboard, we found a huge stock of cigarettes, cigars, pipe tobacco. He must have been a good Nazi, considering how scarce these commodities were in Germany. By now his wife, hearing the commotion upstairs, had joined us. After removing the entire stock of tobacco, we began sharing it out with our Russian key producer. At first, he refused to accept any, saying we'd found it, it belonged to us, but we insisted on stuffing his pockets with part of the loot. As a passing gesture, he said that if the German had caused us any trouble, he would take him downstairs and shoot him. 
On hearing hit this, both the Germans and his wife nearly collapsed with fright, but Jim and I declined our friend's offer and went downstairs with him, where we walked away to seek another treasure. It was not long after this that the cry fire rang out. With almost incredible speed, flames were racing through the Baroness's mansion. Hungry flames licked at the fine furniture and priceless relics, and soon the whole house was burning fiercely. As the staircase collapsed, the gorilla standing at the head of the stairs, like the Roman centurion at Pompeii, slowly toppled forward and plunged headfirst into the inferno below. How the fire had started was a mystery. Our guess was that the Baroness had destroyed the mansion rather than let it be taken over by the Russian forces. Within a short while, nothing remained but the charred shell of a once magnificent building. Listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matthias. www.soundimage.org. <laughs>